0: Hello and welcome to Beer and Bites, your regular digital and marketing PR podcast produced by financial PR communications agency MRM. You've got me, Amy Rowe, and you've got Michael Taggett. Say hello, Michael.
1: Hello, Michael.
0: Today we've got a very special interview with Baroness Altman, former Pensions Minister where she talks about a now famous pension scandal that propelled her to fame, but also the challenges that came with it. That's all to come. But first, we're going to talk about Google. Michael, why are we talking about Google today?
1: Well, Amy, Google has got itself into some serious hot water, and it's managed to do that by upsetting some of the world's best-known brands um, here in in the UK and over in America. And you're talking about really well-known brands and it's done that through its advertising service not working in the way that brands expect it to work.
0: So how exactly has that played out?
1: So what's been happening is um, adverts for big brands including financial services brands like RBS and uh, HSBC have been appearing on extremist websites and next to extremist content throughout the World Wide Web. And the way that that happens is if you're a big brand, so let's stick with RBS, Mm. you'll want your adverts to appear all over the Internet in this day and age. And it doesn't work in the way that it used to work, where you'd uh, put a specific advert with a specific publication. Now Google plays an intermediator role where you sign up to um, a, a, an advertising system called AdSense, you tell Google what sort of websites you'd like your brand to appear on, because they match your brand um, qualities, um, and then Google will do the work of placing those adverts.
0: Okay, so this is actually, well, what we're talking about here is sort of programmatic advertising,
1: right? That's the, the the sort of the jargonic phrase, as it were, that the. the possibly people will have to google to find out what yeah, that is yeah. um but yeah yeah it's an algorithm it's effectively robots. so you could be let's say your boots um you may be obviously you sell lots of health products you would say to google we want um adverts for our toothpaste um our lovely shiny adverts to appear on um uh, nice dental private dental healthcare websites and then again if they're signed up to this system to to be showing the adverts um, Google will do the hard work of placing them. Oh, okay. I say hard work, it's all automated.
0: If it's that simple, Michael, how how is it that we've been seeing adverts from, you know, The Guardian, for example, I know that was one, Um, being served up next to extremist content. I
1: I liken this to another Google activity driverless cars in that in theory it should all work properly Mm -hmm. Um, in theory these robots and systems are programmed well but it just never goes to plan when you're when you're talking about automating everything so what so what you at that
0: scale I suppose too exactly you're
1: talking about uh, a significant proportion of all the advertising in the entire world. And you're talking about a significant proportion of the websites in the world involved in in Google's AdSense programme. So something is going to break, apparently, and and boy did it break in a big way.
0: How did this all come to light then?
1: Well, the Times newspaper did an investigation revealing that adverts from government departments, um, from Channel 4, from the BBC, from Argos, from L'Oreal and other really well-known brands, I mean our listeners will have heard of all of those obviously, they were being placed next to YouTube videos of US white nationalists. Uh, There were some also placed next to an Islamist hate preacher who's actually banned in the UK um, and and, and other such websites Um, and, and this was obviously done through this automated system.
0: Why would you even choose an automated system if it's that risky?
1: It just takes out all the hard work. There was a time um, where brands had to actually have someone in their advertising department or the marketing department individually choosing outlets for for their adverts to appear in. This just takes that headache away, which obviously saves money.
0: So what's Google obviously G- Google must have known about this for a very long time. what's it doing what's it said?
1: Google's promised that it's going to conduct um, what it's called a thorough review um, and and brand controls on the advertising system um, and a guy called Ronan Harris, who's the managing director of Google over here in the UK, said that the company's actually going to be making changes that will give brands much more control over where their adverts appear and I'm not sure. How that's going to happen? There's not much detail at the moment, but um, but that guy Ronan Harris said that 400 hours of video are uploaded every day to YouTube. Sorry, every minute to YouTube, um, and and that they took down last year nearly two billion bad adverts or adverts that shouldn't have been placed where they were placed, um, and from from a hundred thousand different video publishers. So. They've obviously known there's a problem for quite a long time. Mm. They're obviously trying to do something about it, but they're worried.
0: Sounds like it's uh, sort of overwhelmingly large, really. Um, Actually, that does remind me of... um, I saw a number of weeks ago a very prominent blogger. I was reading um, a post on their site, and this was about... um, about getting into debt, actually, and tips to get how to get out of debt, and I did notice and thought this is bizarre. There was a an advert being served. It might have been by AdSense or some other programmatic advertising um, uh, network, but it was being served on on payday loans or some sort of loan consolidator, and I thought. Mm. That's a little bit dodgy. I wonder whether this um, whether
1: this blogger knows. No, of, co- of course, they wouldn't have known, and it's quite possible that um, when you looked at that page, you saw one advert, and when if I'd looked at it ten minutes later, I'd have seen an, a completely different advert. Mm. So this is the this is a big problem with this type of advertising. If you sign up for it at the end where you showed the advert, you don't know what adverts are coming onto your page, and if you sign up at the other end where you want your adverts displayed. It might be that you don't want them to be displayed where That's they end sure. up being displayed.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess it, it, it does sound very much like um, if I may use the analogy of what, what, if parents don't know where their children are, they need to be asking the right questions. Brands. Do you know where your advertising is? Do you know where
1: do your you know ads, where are you ads are hanging out? Do you know who they're hanging out with? No, it's yeah. absolutely right. But it's a really good idea. If you're doing a reasonable amount of advertising online at this point in time, to to, to question whether you do know where that advertising is being shown, and whether that that those sites or those parts of YouTube, if it's by videos, whether they actually fit with your brand.
0: We've now got a fascinating interview to share with you. Uh, and this is uh, an interview that Michael and I conducted with Baroness Altman, previous pensions minister, um, where we went to the House of Lords and asked um, Baroness Altman to tell us more about uh, an extremely long and complicated um, scandal in the early 2000s that is commonly known as the pensions theft scandal.
1: Yeah, so this was a, uh, a, a scandal, as you say, Back in the early 2000s, where the economy wasn't doing so well, there were lots of big companies, for example, Allied Steel going bust. And what was happening, because the legislation was allowing it to, and there wasn't enough protection for workers, a lot of these companies simply weren't paying the pensions that were owed to their workers. Now, this is something that Baroness Altman became aware of very early on, and and she correctly realised that it was a problem with the law, and then she set about years literally years Years. of campaigning to get various Prime Ministers a sequence of Prime Ministers including Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron to do something about the problem and you can listen also hear in this interview how passionate Baroness Altman is it really comes through and and you would be wouldn't you if you worked on something like that for 10 years
0: yeah and in particular I think it's fascinating listening to how she engaged with the media at this time when no one else was listening.
1: That's right. We had a cup of tea and we started off by asking Baroness Altman just to tell us about that pensions theft campaign. Here's what she said.
2: Well the pensions theft campaign represented 150,000 people who had been assured by government that their final salary pensions were completely safe and protected by new laws put in after the Maxwell scandal. But it turned out these laws were flawed because if you were saving in a company final salary scheme in those days, you couldn't have any other pension. So all your extra pension contributions had to go in there too, and some of their state pension was in there, and they had lost the lot. Um, I'd worked at the Treasury and at Number 10 and had pointed out that this so-called protection didn't work but the government didn't want to know at the time Uh, and then Panorama asked me to go down to South Wales in 2002 and meet some of these steel workers who had suddenly discovered that despite all these assurances, their pension had disappeared. Panorama had picked up that this was happening to companies across the country and Allied Steel and Wire, a a big steel company in South Wales which also had... uh, branches in Sheerness as well, had gone bust, leaving its workers having lost their pensions. And so Panorama decided to do a programme on it, I had already been flagging this up. I went down to South Wales and it was when I met these people and realised how dreadful this really was in practice. The law protected only those people who'd already taken their pensions. So unless you knew about it, and you were just loyally working for the company, you ended up completely penniless for retirement potentially. So it was meeting those people that made me believe that given I was working in number 10 at the time and advising Tony Blair's economic policy unit, I might be in a position to actually do something to help. So I thought, well, I need to help. Um, over the coming months I started talking I mean the Panorama programme had quite an impact and in fact it was a bit of a problem for myself because a lot of people in the pensions industry phoned me up and said you've got to shut up you've got to be quiet you're bringing pensions into disrepute You know, this is just a, a minority of people most people are safe and they wanted me to just hide it all under the carpet and I said no, I'm sorry
1: Can you name some names for us? I can't name the names, (laughs) but it
2: was leading people in the pensions industry at the time Mm. who phoned me and threatened me and said, you know, you're you're damaging the pensions industry. And I said, no, the pensions industry is damaging the members. And the government's policy has got to change. And these people have got to be made good. Meanwhile, between 2002 and 2004, hundreds of other companies failed. Mm. Thousands of other workers were losing their pensions. And at least I did manage at that stage to work with Number 10 and the Treasury to ensure that the Pension Protection Fund was put in place and a new regulatory regime started. That began with the 2004 Pensions Act and the measures started in 2005. And by 2005, of course, these people had been waiting years already for pensions that the government kept saying, nothing to do with us, or offering them a pathetic amount of money which didn't go anywhere near replacing the pensions that they were expecting. Mm. And I thought the government would then properly compensate these people, but no. Gordon Brown and the Treasury dug their heels in. So we raised a little bit of money. The lawyers agreed to work on a no-win, no-fee basis. The government kept trying to get this issue to go away by refusing to promise if they actually won the case, they wouldn't sue these people for costs and take their houses away, as well as having lost their pensions. But we went ahead anyway. We won in the High Court. Guess what, the government appealed. So we ended up having to go to the Court of Appeal. The government lost again. And it was only at that stage, we got a new Secretary of State, Peter Hayne came in, and a new Pensions Minister, Mike O'Brien. And it was just before Christmas 2007, so we'd been, this was years yeah and finally the government agreed to pay these people the equivalent of what the pension protection fund would have paid them it took all that time and it was hell you know i i just couldn't turn my back on these people but i never expected that it would take that long i never expected that it would require that amount of commitment and continuous continuous pressure. Mm. The media were fantastic, you know, the media understood the injustice. You
0: must have been quite uh, amazing with the media um, really in talking about this if you weren't at every turn you were being kind of um, turned away.
2: Well the pensions industry at the beginning were terribly unhelpful. Mm. Eventually we got all the opposition parties on site. That helped and once I could help help the people talk to the media, that made a huge difference. One of the things that was really powerful, uh, in 2003 I came up with the best slogan I will ever dream up in my entire life. We had decided that we were going to demonstrate at the uh, Labour Party conference, which was coming up in September. And we wanted to have a eye-catching demonstration and we came up with the banner stripped of our pensions which was exactly what had happened to them you know I I I suddenly thought thought, hang on this is what's happened so the uh, image was that these guys would be going down to the party conference stand on the beach stripped naked with a banner saying, stripped of our pensions. And that really caught the imagination. That went round the world.
1: That sort of thing's not that unusual in Brighton, though, is it?
2: Well, for a bunch of pensioners and old steel workers and and industrial Mm -hmm. workers, you know, as it happens, they had two pairs of underpants. So (laughs) although they started off with uh, looking as if they were just in their pants and then dropped them, they did have another.
1: Can we fast forward a little bit, if you don't mind? So you then obviously fast forward a few years. You began working with David Cameron's um, government as pensions minister, having learned an awful lot about the system and the intransigence of ministers and what have you and and, and the great British public. Um, what what do you think the problems were with pensions nationally when you started working with David Cameron in David Cameron's government and how did you set about solving them?
2: Well As pensions minister, there's two parts that one is involved in. One is the state pension bit, and the other is the private pension bit. That's as far as pensions are concerned. And we have already had major reforms of the state pension. Those were enacted over the last couple of years. It wasn't put in in the way I would have put it in. And the real injustice on the state pension side was a campaign that again I was really involved in in 2011 when I was Director General of Saga we were trying to get the government at the time to see that increasing women's state pension age really fast despite having given a commitment that women's pension age would not increase before 2020 it was a written commitment in the coalition agreement the government actually changed that and started increasing women's state pension age a second time for the same women from 2018. Mm. So I was then going to be responsible for a matter that I campaigned against and I believe still is unfair. Mm. In addition to which you had the complexities of the state pension system that had been reformed. So again, one of my roles was to try and explain to the public, because the previous pensions minister had hidden Mm. Uh, some of the ways in which this was going to impact people, particularly those who were what's called contracted out of the state pension system. It's the most complicated bit, and it should have been explained at the same time as the new system was being brought in. But instead, the narrative was well, everybody's going to get a flat rate, 155 or whatever pounds a week, from the new state pension. That's not true. If you were contracted out, some of your new state pension will be paid by your private pension scheme, because of the way the system worked in the past, so I had those issues to deal with. On the private pension side, it was a much better picture, I thought, because I really do believe in um, George Osborne's freedom and choice agenda that mm. um, was introduced in, in 2014. You know, from 2015, nobody would be forced to buy an annuity anymore. Mm. You know, I think that is long overdue. Well, it was a brilliant move, and it opened up the landscape for private pensions. But there's a tussle between the Treasury and the DWP when it comes to private pensions. And that also I had seen uh, in my campaign, you know, that DWP ministers often wanted to do something and the Treasury just said no, uh, and it didn't happen. Treasury has the ultimate
1: power. Can, you, can we just focus for a second on um, products that are, are floating around. You talk, talked about annuities there. Great that they, um, they had the rug whipped from underneath them. But there's a whole debate about whether the pensions crisis can be solved or partly solved um, by, um, by, by products like ISAs and the lifetime ISA. So, but I mean, it could be said, perhaps unfairly, that you're wedded to pensions products. I don't know if you'd agree with that. And um, what do you think of the ISA versus pensions?
2: I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that for almost everybody a pension will beat an ISA. The lifetime ISA product that has been developed is even worse than an ordinary ISA for people. Despite the fact that it's got a bonus at the beginning, that bonus is no more than you'd get from basic rate tax relief. So it doesn't give you more money than you'd get in a pension. And if you're a higher rate taxpayer, it will give you a lot less money than you would get in a pension. The problem is a lot of people don't understand
1: pensions. Well, these are incredibly difficult um, top issues for normal people to understand, the difference between being taxed on the way into a product and being taxed on the way out of it. And what, what can the industry do about that?
2: I have been trying to get the industry to understand that we need a promotion campaign for pensions. We need to help people see why pensions are such a good product. Mm. Unfortunately, too often, the industry works on the principle that they know why pensions are a good product, so they don't actually need to explain it to people. All they need to do is tell people to buy more of them. So you're starting from stage two, instead of from stage one. First of all, you need to help people realize why they are a good thing. Then you can tell them, well, now you know how good they are, you might want a bit more. Instead, the industry says, you should be, you know, it's all stick. You yeah. should be uh, saving more in a pension. Whatever you're saving is never enough. I mean, you know, as far as the industry is concerned, the messages are always, people aren't saving enough, people aren't saving enough. Instead of helping them understand why saving in a pension gives them free money? It's free. It's, it's, it's more free money and freedom uh, later on. As pensions minister, the biggest issue on my agenda for private pensions was auto enrolment. That is a project that started in 2012, but is not going to finish until 2018-19. So. we were only part way through. Only 5% of employers had actually started a pension scheme for their workforce under this policy of auto-enrolment. The policy of auto-enrolment is brilliant. It was designed with too many complexities. If I had been able to design it from the start, I would have made it much simpler, but we are where we are. There had been consistent attempts by Number 10 and the Treasury to derail auto-enrolment. The DWP is wedded to it and I think it's right. The policy basically says every worker in the country should be put into a pension scheme automatically. It's just taking the lessons of behavioral economics on board and saying look we know there's a lot of inertia out there. We also know that a lot of people can benefit from saving in a pension. we make it automatic that they're in one and have to opt out, they're much more likely to stay than if you have the old system where you have to actually opt in. People don't bother to opt in, just the same as they clearly are not bothering to opt out. The opt-out rates are far lower than anybody predicted. And young people have the lowest opt-out rates of all. So young people... Is that
1: because they're the laziest?
2: I think, I actually think that the generation of young people today knows that they need to take some responsibility for themselves and if they have been put into something at work they stay in it. They understand, I think, that getting into a pension scheme gives them extra money from their employer that they wouldn't have otherwise. I mean this is the point with pensions. If you put money into a house or you put money into an ISA, an ordinary ISA, that's the money you get and there's no bonus on top of that. If you put money into a pension under auto enrolment, you get extra money from your employer. So for every pound you put in, if you're a basic rate taxpayer and you get basic rate tax relief, you get an extra pound for free on day one. So it's buy one, get one free. Who knows that? Does anybody tell you that? All they might tell you is, well, you get an employer contribution and basic rape tax relief. That sort of doesn't mean anything. I think that language is
0: really confusing for most people. And I say you need the equivalent of um, stripped of our pensions on yeah. the beaches.
2: I agree. Um, you need people to see that you double your money on day one, at least. If you've got salary sacrifice, which again, nobody understands, you get even more than that. If you're a higher rate taxpayer, you get even more than that. So this is free money, and if you didn't put it into a pension, but you put it into another savings product, you'd have a lot less on day one. So even if the two products perform exactly the same, you'd still end up with a lot more money having put yours into a pension in the first place, Mm. but people don't know. My concerns about the lifetime ISA are that people will be misled. There will be, I'm sure, if this product is widely available, there will be certainly misbuying and possibly misselling of this product. Most people will not realise that a 25% government bonus is exactly the same as 20% tax relief because of the way the maths works with grossing up. Most people don't know that. It's the same money. Also, with the huge exit penalty that is being uh, introduced into this lifetime ISA, people will be confused. Because what they won't realize is that a 25% exit penalty is not just taking back the 25% government bonus. It's an extra 6% on top of what you got from the government. So you will end up with a lot less money, you will lose money if you're putting money into a lifetime ISA instead of a pension, on the premise that you might want to take it back again. You will be out of pocket, but people won't know. The the whole product is very, very dangerously designed. And of course, it's not just me saying that. Most providers aren't even offering one. There are very few. This lifetime ISA, however, is great for the really top earners who've already filled all their pension allowance, £40,000 annual allowance, or who've already filled their £1 million lifetime allowance. So they get extra tax relief free. Is that what we want to spend taxpayers' money on? It's also excellent for the relatives of wealthy parents or grandparents who've already put the full £3,600 worth into a pension for younger people, who maybe aren't even earning at the time. They might be still students. Mm. They can get, again, extra money from the taxpayer, but surely we should be worried about the people, the low earners, who need extra money for their retirement rather than the very highest earners or relatives of wealthy people who can afford to put money in for them. So, I cannot see the rationale for trying to use a lifetime ISA as a pension unless it's a Trojan horse to try and destroy the much better product, which is pensions, and take advantage of the lack of understanding which is why I am begging the pensions industry to come up with a proper promotion campaign Mm -hmm. and language that will help people understand why pensions are currently so good. After freedom and choice, you no longer have to buy an annuity. That was a big turn off for a lot of people with pensions. It doesn't happen now. You can use that money as you wish. You don't get the 55% death tax charge. So again, there's no reason why you should rush to spend the money, you can keep it till much later in life, which surely should be the point of pensions. Again, with an ISA structure, there's no break on spending it too soon. Once you reach later life, taking money out of pensions in small bits means you probably won't pay tax on it. Whereas with the ISA, the incentive would be take it all out because it's tax free today but you don't know a future government might come in and slap a tax on this money because don't forget you've got a 25% bonus on the way in so they might just say we're just taking that back again. That is why I think we need to understand the benefits of pensions. If you want to buy a house an ISA is fine. If you want to save for a rainy day an ISA is fine but most ISAs are in cash. That's not a suitable long term investment
1: vehicle. Can we, because I'm conscious the time is running out, have we got one more question? Yeah, go on. Because I mean we are a tech and social media podcast as well Um, and I'm conscious that one part of your life is all about the kind of pensions and finance and what have you, another is that you're a public figure and being a public figure are potentially subject to online abuse like any politician and any MP, and, and of course you have been um, been abused publicly in the past. Um, is that a real issue for, for politicians like yourself in this day and age?
2: It's something that really, really does upset me, I must say. I should have a thicker skin. I was never really a politician, I mean, I'm a policy expert who was brought in for my expertise. I, I, I've been politically independent most of my life, I've worked with different parties and I've voted for different parties. But I care about people, you know for me, pensions are about people, they're not just about money and having abuse from the people I've tried to help or members of ordinary members of the public who I maybe have helped in the past or who are you know I don't know and who have an image of me that may not be right is very painful, and some of the abuse that I got as, as minister was really amazing to me. Was
1: it, would you describe it as illegal abuse? Was it, was it really abusive?
2: I'm told that some of it was probably illegal. I mean, I used to just try and delete it all. Mm. But, you know, I, I've had people who say they hope I'd die of cancer, or, you know, that I should be strung up, or, or, or you know, all sorts of horrible, vile threats of, of violence. I mean, there are some really unsavoury characters out there on, on social media and it seems to be a sort of license to uh, insult or threaten or, or just try and bully people but um, I think that seems to go with the territory these days. I've also had very uh, upsetting, threatening letters through the post, you know anonymous letters, uh, as well as again emails and social media because I was um, supporting the Remain campaign.
0: I think we, we've taken up so much of our time already, but we, we, we're going to have to wrap it up. But thank yeah. you so much. Thank up. you. Nice to speak to you. Thank you. A real education as well, and wonderful to hear from, from, from yourself exactly what that amazing campaign was all about. Such a fascinating account there by Baroness Altman, and thank you um, to Ros for, for her time too. I mean, it really struck us after that interview when the um, when the sort of recording stopped rolling, how this really could have been a film.
1: Yeah, I mean, it literally could. It's it's got a, a real kind of Aaron brockovich type mm. style to it. It's it genuinely is a, a single campaigner who no one would listen to at the start, um, who just wouldn't lie down and uh, and has actually brought about change over a period of years that will affect millions of people for a long long time so if you know if there ever were a film to be made about financial services of all things this is the story of a true campaigner in financial services
0: and worth worth noting how she wasn't a partisan
1: no no i mean she's worked with the the labor governments she worked with um tory governments i know she is Mm -hmm. now a tory baroness but that's kind you get the feeling Uh, And these are my words, not hers. But you get the feeling that's because she ended up in the Tory party, not not, not because she's party political.
0: Yes. Um, If listeners want to know more about Baroness Altman, actually, I'd suggest doing a Google um, and I'm sure she's on Twitter.
1: Yeah. Um, And that that, that campaign is the pensions theft campaign. So if you Google that with um, Baroness Altman's name, Ros Altman, you're bound to find it.
0: Michael, I think that about wraps it up for this week. If you'd like to hear more from me and Michael, we are actually on the Twitters too. I'm at Amy L. row R-O-W-E.
1: And if you liked hearing from me, I'm Michael underscore Taggart, T-A-W-G-A-R-T.
0: And also, you should know that you can also give the Beer and Bites podcast, Beer Amps and Sam Bites podcast, um, a five-star rating, if you like, on the internet.
1: Not a four-star rating, please. Not,
0: not four-star, thanks. Uh, none of that. Um, and, and that's it for, for us for now. Thanks ever so much.
1: Bye. For listening for so long. Cheers. Cheers.